it's, it's a little, without being pun, it's a sticky, little sticky situation because it's, <laughs> it's years of, it's years of like kind of acceptance, I think. And with the ideal that you want pitchers having a, having control of the ball. And, and I just think it got out of hand where it, it went to another level where it was used to actually take advantage. And, and then it became, a, a, you know, a, an actual athletic advantage by going overboard with it. And so then I think now we're at this point and it sounds like they're just going to clear the deck, right? It's going to be nothing. Uh, rosin, and that's, that's the way it looks like it's going to go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson. Flying solo today after getting back into South Florida after covering a week of games up in St. Louis and Chicago, with the Marlins getting swept by the Cardinals before putting on a pretty good showing when they took two of three in dominant fashion against the Cubs at Wrigley Field. We'll dive into the team's performance in a little bit, but first, we're going to open up the show today talking about the big news around Major League Baseball. On Monday, MLB began enforcing two rules that have been in place for a while now, but more or less disregarded, about the use of foreign substances on baseballs. Sticky stuff, if you will. The gist of it? Umpires will now regularly and routinely check pitchers for any substances on their person be it on their hat, their glove, their fingertips, their belt buckles, etc., etc., during a game. Should someone be caught with any of the goop, which could range from something as simple as soil or sunscreen to a super sticky paste of rosin mixed with other substances that's commonly known nowadays as spider tack, he'll be ejected from the game and suspended for 10 games with pay. His team, however, will not be allowed to replace his roster spot while he serves his suspension which can put managers in a bind. In a memo the league sent out to clubs last week, umpires will start checking starting pitchers multiple times a game, and relief pitchers will be checked either at the end of the inning in which he enters the game, or when he's removed from the game, whichever comes first. The only substance pitchers are allowed to use nowadays are team-supplied rosin bags, and these rosin bags, they have to be submitted to the umpires for review pre-game, similar to the process with game balls, with game balls ahead of, ahead of the outing. And so, how is this going to affect the Marlins? Only time will tell. The Marlins didn't play on Monday. They had an off day after their last road trip. So their first game with these new rules, or the new enforcement of the rules, I guess I should say, comes when they open their two-game series with the Toronto Blue Jays at Lone Depot Park on Tuesday. However, Marlins manager Don Mattingly, speaking to us last week, said that he doesn't anticipate the enforcement to impact his pitchers moving forward. And with after a quick look at StatCast and looking at things like spin rate compared to velocity, all these different things that all these substances are supposed to impact and increase and find ways to have a greater impact for the pitchers, the Marlins rank among the bottom third of baseball for average spin rate on both fastballs and breaking balls compared to the rest of the league. all Just about all of their pitchers are either at league average or below league average. There are a couple guys who have some numbers that are toward the upper tier, and those numbers will need to be monitored and see how things change, if they change. But 
Time will tell as things go on. Here's Mattingly to say all this in his own words. I do not. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing that because I don't think we are really a, a high spin rate club. I mean, Sandy and Trevor and Pablo, I don't think any of those guys are, you know, in that 28 or 3,000 range. I think they're in the normal ranges, and, and I think we'll see that. Now, that same afternoon, the matter Mattingly made it clear that the Marlins most likely aren't going to be impacted, or at least he believes and hopes they aren't going to be impacted by this. He had to clear the air about some accusations that were made by a former Marlins pitcher about the team, and specifically about former president of baseball operations, Michael Hill, who is now a member of the MLB central office and was the guy who sent out the memo announcing the, the enforcement of these new rules. A uh, couple of days earlier on Wednesday, uh, Zach Gallen, who the Marlins traded to the Arizona Diamondbacks back in 2019 in the Jazz Chisholm swap, he told reporters in Arizona during a pregame Zoom call that using foreign substances on baseball has been, quote, a custom and a practice for, I would imagine, a lot of organizations, especially the person running that part of the commissioner's office who is leading the crackdown. Doesn't name names there and doesn't name names in the follow-up, but that leans slightly towards him saying that he's talking about Hill here. He followed up by going by saying the person who was in charge of the crackdown, quote, was in charge of an organization that was definitely at one point saying, hey, you're going to need these things to help you. Hill later denied these accusations in a statement to The Athletic. A few former Marlins pitchers, uh, uh, Tom Kohler, Brad Ziegler, to name a couple, stepped up on Twitter and basically shot that down, saying that they never got any guidance or anything from that nature from anyone from Hill or the front office. And Don Mattingly, who has been with the Marlins for a while now and worked directly with Hill, basically said that that was flat-out false. Uh, here is Mattingly's full statement on the issue. Hey, before we get started, too, for me, I've been, you know, just watching the news a little bit, and I just want to make sure that it's pretty clear that since I've been here in Miami, no one from our front office, uh, past or present, has directed us to do anything with any kind of substance on the ball uh, or anything like that. And obviously, that kind of stuff. It's kind of getting, obviously, it's getting beat up in the news and there's a lot of talk about it. And I, I can't say that we've, we've talked to our players. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have another meeting discussing the memo so they're totally clear on it. But I, I did want to clear up the front office thing because no one uh, has told us to, to do anything or directed us to do anything or have guys do that. So... You know, it is one of those things that's frustrating. I know it's something that's uh, grown in the game. It's been around. Um, but I know, obviously, Major League Baseball has, has put out a policy now. It's going to enforce it. Uh, we're going to move forward from that. Uh, like I said, our guys will know. They'll understand it. Um, or at least will they'll, they'll have been told enough to understand it. Um, 
and then we're going to move forward and, and with, with the policy. And then just to continue on that front, uh, earlier this month, Marlins pitching coach Mel Stoudemire Jr., he told us that back in spring training, general manager Kim Ang, when they announced the, or when le- the when teams were informed that crackdowns could potentially be coming, Kim Ang asked Mel Stoudemire Jr. to just talk with the pitchers that the Marlins had with them and to just explain what's going on, what the punishments could be, and... Mel Stoudemire Jr. basically said that it scared the crap out of the pitchers. Even though, even the few of the guys who were new to the organization and that may or may not have been using at the time were basically, they were scared about what the consequences could have been. And he basically said that he doesn't believe, he doesn't snoop, but he doesn't believe that there is much going on inside the clubhouse. Uh, here's a little bit more directly, specifically from Mel Stoudemire Jr. when we got to talk with him on June 5th. Of course, yeah. With the, the substance thing, our guys are scared of the consequences. So in spring training, when I talked to him, sat down with Kim, she had asked me to have a conversation with our pitchers. And the, the consequences that MLB had lined and laid out for us, spooked our guys, for any of them that may have come from other organizations and used it before, it scared scared our guys away from it. And again, like I said, only time will tell about how everything will play out as this week and the rest of the season unfolds, but we'll be able to get more information, more specifics about what changes might have happened on the Marlins staff as we begin to see them in person with without using the sticky stuff if any of them are using it uh when we come back we're gonna actually talk about the marlins recent road trip what to expect this week and as things start moving forward we're getting ever so much closer to the trade deadline and the marlins are in a precarious spot right now and as usual we'll dive into some minor league baseball action so we will be right back Okay, everyone, we're back. Now that the sticky stuff is out of the way, let's talk some actual baseball. The Marlins had another road series to forget in St. Louis, dropping all three games Monday through Wednesday against the Cardinals, including a pair of walk-off losses to end their time at Bush Stadium. The Marlins scored just three runs combined in those three games and continued the trend that we've seen from this team on the road as of late. Struggling to win close games, inconsistent offense, missed chances, spoiling, generally solid pitching performances. They flipped the script in Chicago, winning the first two games 10-2 and 11-1 before dropping the finale 2-0 at Wrigley. While two big wins don't necessarily mean that the Marlins have found their turning point, especially when you consider there was another shutoff loss to end the series, the pair of wins at Wrigley on Friday and Saturday do show what the Marlins can do when they're hitting their potential, even though they sit nine games under 500 and are in last place in the NL East with the trade deadline just over a month away. So what went right in those games? To start, and to put it probably as simply and bluntly as possible, Adam Duvall destroyed baseballs. He had four home runs, had 10 RBI in those two games. With that, he entered this week leading the National League with 52 RBI on the season. 
And a quick aside, Jesus Aguilar is tied with Fernando Tatis Jr. for second in the National League, entering Monday with 50 RBI. But those two games from Duval also represent the other side of their right fielder who also is playing some gold glove caliber defense. He's very streaky at the plate. The home run barrage came at the end of an 11-game stretch where Duvall was hitting 326 with 7 home runs, 19 ribbies, and 10 runs scored. The Marlins won 6-5 and five in those games. He had two other stretches like this so far this season. A 10-game run in mid-April where he hit 297 with 3 homers, 13 RBI, and 7 runs, with the Marlins going 7-3 and three in those games. The other stretch came from May 4th to May 21st. 302 batting average, 4 home runs, 16 ribbies, 7 runs in a 14-game stretch. 8-6 and six record for the Marlins. So, three stretches, 35 games, broken up by, by some inconsistent sluggish, sluggish slumps. He hits 14 of his 16 home runs, drives in 48 of his 52 RBI, and the Marlins go 21-14 and 14 in those games. The other 27 games he's played in entering this week, outside of those three stretches, two home runs, four RBI, five runs scored, and 38 of his 75 strikeouts. The Marlins are 7-20 and 20 in those 27 games. Now, in a sense, the Marlins kind of expected this streakiness with Duvall. I mean, Don Mattingly's mentioned it before about how Duvall is basically consistently inconsistent. But when he gets on a tear, he gets hot really, really fast. And the one thing that the Marlins are probably surprised by the most is just how much their record has fluctuated in basically incongruence and in symmetry with Duvall's hot and cold streaks as they go. The Marlins basically they need to find ways to get more production out of just that one guy rallying the offense. And as a reminder, as we see this hot and cold and how much he's carrying the team when he is hot, Duvall is on a one-year deal with a $7 million mutual option from the contract he signed with the team this offseason. If the Marlins don't pay the mutual option, he has a $3 million buyout. Another important piece that happened this weekend, the Marlins got their captain back. Shortstop Miguel Rojas, the team's de facto captain, he missed 18 games heading into the series at Wrigley, which included their 12-game stretch on the road where they went 1-11, and before and it was all from a dislocated left index finger when he dove back to first place for a pit after on a pickoff attempt against the Phillies at the end of a homestand at Lone Depot Park. Well, Rojas didn't necessarily provide much offensively, and he did have a couple rare miscues in the field that contributed to Sunday's loss. His presence in the clubhouse is noticed, and his ability to help shore up the infield defensively is beyond key for this team as they continue to move forward within the season and as they continue to try to just figure out this, figure out everything. And it's just the latest step of them getting healthy. They got Starling Marte back a couple weeks ago. They have Rojas back. They're still figuring out third base with Brian Anderson out until at least mid-July. Uh, John Birdie's getting the bulk of the reps there now because the Marlins optioned Isan Diaz when they brought Rojas back. A move that Marlins manager Don Mattingly said is just a way they can make sure Eson's getting his reps at third base and he's getting his everyday at-bats while not feeling the outward pressure of having to learn a brand new position on the fly. And that's not to say that the Marlins were upset or disappointed with how he's playing at third. They were happy defensively with what he was doing. 
But his offensive numbers, again, he was under one. He was, his batting average was under 150 despite having good counts and drawing walks and all of that. But they wanted to be able to find a way for him to get a little less pressure on himself while he continues to learn a new position and try to find himself before they figure out what they need to do with him long term. And with Miguel Rojas back at shortstop, it moves Jazz Chisholm Jr. over to second base which is where he's looked a lot more comfortable this year. He doesn't seem to be rushing his decisions and rushing his throws as much over there. And he's able to have a little bit more, He's his reaction time, he's able to have a little more leniency that way since it's a shorter throw the bulk of the time. And with Rojas coming back, uh, I was able to, along with MLB.com's Christina DiNicola, we were able to talk with Miguel Rojas on the field on Friday before he was he played his first game. Gave us about five minutes of his time to explain what he saw from the team when he was away, how his finger is doing, which it's still heavily taped up as he plays, and there is some discomfort and adjustments that he has to make, and just what he's trying to help the club with as they try to get out of their funk. With that said, here's Miguel Rojas. So first up, Miggy, welcome back. What is it, how did you feel out there in Jacksonville for the couple of days you were able to play and just... How's it feel to be back out here? Uh, it feels amazing to be back with the guys, and uh, that was my main goal, you know, like going down there, trying to get my reps, uh, a couple of my bats, and uh, trying to make sure that I'm healthy, you know, enough to be here and, and be uh, be able to go out there without, uh, you know, any kind of discomfort or anything. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, we have to see how it goes, you know. Uh, um, every game is different, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully I can stay on the field for the rest of the season, and, and that's my biggest goal. But uh, uh, to be back here with the team, it gives me that, that, that extra boost of energy that uh, that I needed to uh, to contribute with the team and trying to uh, get back on track. And the fingers feeling okay now that you've had some time to adjust with how you're holding the bat and everything. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to adjust. It's been a couple of days. Uh, I took like three or four days of body practice. I've been hitting off the machine. Trying to get uh, used to, you know, the, of the discomfort that I'm gonna feel for uh, maybe a couple of weeks. But uh, I mean, that's nothing that I feel at this moment will it will keep me away from the field, and that's that's the biggest reason why I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to do it right now. As soon as I, as soon as I feel like a little bit better uh, to play, that's why I'm here and in, in the lineup today. How, how much? How often do you have to have the tape on the gloves? Yeah, it's gonna be a little bit difficult because I need to wear uh, this kind of protection on top of my glove. Uh, before uh, when when I'm on the field, but I have to take it off when I'm hitting. So it's gonna be something uh, to protect me a little bit when I'm running the bases. But uh, this is gonna be a thing where sometimes you're gonna make me see uh, like you, you're gonna see me on the on the bases and then sprinting back to the dugout so one trainer can wrap it up again because I always gonna be on my either on my back pocket or my or inside of my glove because uh, that's something that I need to protect my finger uh, when I'm playing on the field. So uh, it's gonna be a little different, but uh, at the end of the day. I'm, uh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes uh, to be here and and trying to uh, overcome all the obstacles. Mickey, what's been your message to the team, especially in these last couple road trips? Since you've been out, it's only been, I think it's 1-11 on the road since up until you're coming back. What have you been telling the guys to try to keep them upbeat as they go through this? Yeah, I mean, um, not really a message that I can really deliver when I'm away, you know, like it's really hard. I feel like from home is different than, than being grinding. You know, you don't know what happens behind the scene, you know, when, when you're not here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be supportive. That's, that's, that's the biggest thing that I can be, be supportive with the guy, be there for them if they need to talk or anything like that. 
And at the end of the day, the, my biggest message is being here today, three weeks after this happened, uh, playing a game uh, with them again. Uh, and it doesn't matter how we go from here now, we just got to forget about what, passing, uh, what happened in the past and just move forward and, and continue to, uh, to grind and try to win games. When you're not here with the club, is there anybody who you try to push into that sort of vocal type role, the, the guy who try to corral people when you aren't able to physically be with the guys? Well, the thing is like, remember, uh, not, not everybody's the same. Everybody yeah. leads the, the way that they they feel like they, they can lead. You know, we got a lot of veterans here that they lead by example. Eggy is a guy that always prepared for the game and he always out there, you know, like he's not asking for updates, he's getting his updates because, I mean, he's a, he's a human, you know, he's not a machine, he has to take his breaks. But uh, for me, like the biggest, uh, the biggest thing is like these veteran guys keep leading for, uh, by example and uh, being there for them. Not everybody's vocal. I decided and choose to be vocal just because uh, I care about this organization and I care about what we're doing. And uh, um, uh, I mean, I can't ask anybody else to be the same. What did you just think? Like, I know when we talked to you on Zoom, me like a week or so ago, you kind of said some of the stuff you think. But like, what are you saying just lately from the team? It seems like I don't know, like things don't go your way. You know, maybe not everyone playing their best, but they can't. Like, just what are you saying? that the results have been like especially on the road well like uh, what I'm seeing is uh, a lot of open downs you know we went home we played really good baseball you know it, it looks like a different team but I mean at the, at the other end we're not the only team that are going through this you know we got a lot of a lot of other teams that it's really hard for them to win on the road as well you know winning in the big leagues is not easy you know like sometimes I know our team is good and uh, it's reflected more at home right now than on the road. But I mean, it's even out. Last year we played really good on the road. We wasn't playing that good at home. So I mean, it's it's a, it's a long season, and we're gonna go through stretches like this. Hopefully today we can start a new like uh, winning streak on the road, and then people will will forget about these fights, you know. Arizona, right? Yeah. And moving forward, the Marlins have 19 games left before the All Star break, and not just. Is this stretch in general going to help determine how much the Marlins are going to do or how, what the Marlins are going to do with the trade deadline? Because no matter what, they're going to need to have that decision made by that point, no matter what. 13 of those 19 games have come against divisional opponents. Four with the Nationals this weekend, Thursday through Sunday. A six-game road trip that is three at the Phillies, three at the Braves, which takes us through the 4th of July. And then they have three more against the Braves back at Lone Depot Park, July 9th through 11th. The NL East, with even with the Marlins in last place in 9 under 500, the Marlins are still heading into this week. They're still in contention, or at least close to first place. I mean, they're only eight games back of first place despite being in last place. That's the, sh- that's the smallest differential between first place and last place of any of the four divisions in baseball, or any of the six divisions in baseball. So it's not as if the Marlins are entirely out yet, but a, a slump here right before the All-Star break all but guarantees that the Marlins are going to be sellers, in a sense, at the trade deadline. And we've mentioned it a few times over the past few weeks, the Marlins have veterans on expiring deals that if they feel like they're not going to be able to make it and make it and have a legitimate chance at a playoff run, that they're going to be able to flip to continue building what they've been building as they try to continue to stockpile the farm and potentially find a couple younger hitters who have proven track records in the big leagues as they try to move forward. 
the main guys who come to mind for the trade deadline as they start to look about a month ahead. Uh, Starling Marte, even though he has expressed his interest in a in an extension and wanting to stay in Miami, he's going to be the hottest guy on the market from this team. He's a gold glove caliber center fielder. He's played solid on offense. He's able to do work on the base paths. He would be a guy that a contending team is going to strive for. Jesus Aguilar is another option, especially considering the Marlins have Lewin Diaz on, on the rise, and he's going to be their hopeful first baseman of the future. They're going to want to get some extended look to him. So Aguilar could be an option as well. And again, as we mentioned, 50 RBI, 12 home runs this year. He's been solid on offense and has been pretty good on defense as well. And then Yimmy Garcia, you would have to think he's an option as well, especially he's a he's been the closer. He can do anything in the high leverage situations, potentially sort of like what we saw the Marlins do when they flipped Sergio Romo to the Twins in 2019. Goes from the closer to being a seventh inning, eighth inning setup guy. And he's a free agent after this year. So it's going to be probably logically there. Another guy who potentially could have been an option was Corey Dickerson, but he's on the IL right now. He's in a walking boot. He has a serious foot injury and his trade value is basically all but eliminated at this point. Uh, So it's going to be an interesting three weeks to follow as the Marlins continue to figure out exactly where they stand. And to close out the show, it's time for some minor league talk. And it feels like we have to start with Edward Cabrera here. As everyone knows, Cabrera is the Marlins' number four overall prospect in their organization and the number 52 overall prospect in baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. And he's been sidelined since before spring training with right bicep nerve inflammation. Uh, He made his first start with double-A Pensacola on Saturday, which is just his latest progression in his rehab after making two rehab starts, six shutout innings overall with Class A Jupiter. He was solid, again. Four and a third innings with the double-A Blue Wahoos. Uh, He threw 67 pitches, 42 of which went for strikes. Gave up just one run on while giving up two hits and a walk. He struck out seven. Uh, Cabrera was still on the pitch count. He was supposed to be around the 55 pitch mark, according to uh, Blue Wahoo's manager, Kevin Randall. And the hope was that he'd be able to get through five innings. He was able to get into the fifth, which is still an encouraging sign. The hope is that he'll he'll get a couple... I would assume he's going to get at least one more, maybe two more starts in AA. Continue to get that pitch count up. And then the Marlins will, depending on how he performs there, move him to AAA, give him some starts there before making a decision as to if or when he makes his MLB debut. Because as we're going to have to remind everyone, Cabrera didn't get to pitch in the 2020 season. There was no minor league season due to COVID-19. He was with the Marlins alternate training site but had a shoulder injury that set him back around the time the season started. So he still needs to get his innings. He still needs to get comfortable on the mound. He has to feel like he's 100%. And Cabrera actually recently told Marlins Radio's Kyle Seeloff that he's close to 100%, but because of just how long he was off the mound, that he still feels uncomfortable at times and he's still working on it. But once he does get comfortable, 
he's going to be a force to be reckoned with or has the potential to be a force to be reckoned with. That he has the fastball that sits around sits in the high nineties, touches hundred. He has a solid changeup, a solid slider. And when you factor him into a rotation that could potentially include him, Sandy Alcantara, Pablo Lopez, Trevor Rogers, Sixo Sanchez, depending on whenever his health is, he's still on flat ground. He was throwing at 75 feet as of this weekend. So there's really going to be a while to wait for Sixto as well. But Edward, after his breakout 2019 season, showed that he has the potential to be a, the latest frontline starter the Marlins have inside their organization at the minor leagues. Uh, and his outing overall, again, the 67 pitches is the encouraging sign you're seeing the buildup there. Uh, the lone run he surrendered was a a home run on a full count in, to lead off the second. He struck out seven of the final ten batters he faced after that. And in the first inning, he got out of a, a jam where he gave up a leadoff walk and a single to by getting a double play and then a ground ball to end the inning unscathed. So a lot of encouragement and a lot of encouraging signs from Edward Cabrera and we'll be able to get more clarity on what's happening with him after he makes his next start next week for... Presumably the Blue Wahoos. And to stick in double A, I want to talk a little bit about Gerard Encarnacion. Uh, you know him as the big hitter, has all, has a lot of power to play. His natural position is right field. That's where he's played the majority of his games since he started in the minors uh, about five years ago. But as we know, the Marlins system is just filled with outfielders. Talented outfielders. Nine of their top 30, according to MLB Pipeline, are outfielders. So, Gerard Encarnacion, even with all of the power and all of the potential he can bring offensively, and presuming that there is going to be a DH once the new collective bargaining agreement comes in, that's going to help him as well. But defensively, he's in a tough spot if he was solely to stay an outfielder. And the Marlins, in spring training, started giving him a few reps at first base. He came in as a defensive replacement a few times. Looked like he was comfortable there. He had some pretty good moves. He had a couple good picks. Uh, They're continuing that progression with him in AA. Uh, He's in in the six-game series that that they're doing in the minor leagues each week. Their goal in double-A rounds is to have Gerard play two games at first base and then the other four either in left field, at right field, or at designated hitter. And they've liked what they've seen so far. Uh, so far, he's played in 10 games there. He's converted 85 of his 87 fielding chances. That's a 977 fielding percent percentage while helping turn 10 double plays. Uh, and prior to 2020... He only played four minor league games at first base. Uh, I had the chance to talk with Blue Wahoos manager Kevin Randall about Encarnacion this weekend. Here's what the manager had to say. Yeah, obviously he's more comfortable in the outfield and uh, moves around a little bit better and knows the game situations in the outfield. So uh, what we're trying to do is just give him two to, two games a week over at first base. Just you know, just add another tool in the tool belt for him. Um, you know, outfield is uh, loaded in Miami. We've got a lot of prospects in the outfield. So 
if he can play one more position, just uh, be a little more uh, versatile for the club. And, uh, you know, obviously the bat has to come along, and I think it will. Um, he's going through some things now, but I think uh, at the end of the season, you know, having the, you know, those games underneath his belt at first base just gives Miami another option. And now is a pretty good time to remind everyone that the Marlins' first base depth outside of who they have at the big league level right now is very thin. They have Jesus Aguilar right now. They have Garrett Cooper, who is on the IL with a lumbar strain. And they have Lewin Diaz up in the big leagues right now. No one else in the organization at this point is MLB ready. I'm not saying Gerard Encarnacion is ready yet. But this basically provides a clearer path for him to be able to find a find a way to get to the big leagues to get to make his MLB debut. That might be a little bit easier than having to fight through this gauntlet of outfielders internally that the Marlins have with JJ Blade, Jesus Sanchez, who's already up, Victor Mesa Jr., Peyton Burdick, Monte Harrison, Cam Meisner, Connor Scott, and Griffin Conine. All of them are ranked above above Encarnacion by MLB Pipeline. All of those eight are within the top 18 inside the Marlins organization. Encarnacion is number 21. But again, there's no denying what he can do with the plate. Uh, 2019, he had a breakout year between uh, low A and high A. Drove in 71 runs, had 43 extra base hits. Both of those led Marlins prospects during the 2019 season across all four levels of full season ball. And he has strong showing at the Arizona Fall League after the minor league season ended, including the go-ahead Grand Slam in the championship game. He was part of big league spring training each of the last two years. So the Marlins, uh, between Mattingly and the coaching staff, they have had eyes on him. They like what they've seen. And... He's had some pretty good success so far in AA. His six home runs and his 19 RBI ranked second on the Blue Wahoos. They're both only behind Peyton Burdick. 14 of his 35 hits this year, 37% have gone for extra bases. And he has a 363 batting average on balls in play. So basically, his batting average, when you take out home runs, you take out strikeouts, and you include uh, sack bunts and sack flies into the equation. That leads AA Pensacola and its 10th overall among qualified hitters who are in AA South, the division that the Blue Wahoos are playing. So, Encarnacion, a guy to watch, especially as we see his bats start to continue to get hot. And a couple other quick notables from this week to wrap this up. The Marlins had a minor league cycle this week. Troy Johnston. The Marlins' 17th round pick in the 2019 draft went 4 for 6 with 6 RBI and 4 runs scored in Class A advanced Beloit's 15 8 win over the Peoria Chiefs on Saturday. The four hits a first inning home run, second inning double, fourth inning triple, and eighth inning single. And just because we have to bring it up again, the Marlins' big league club still has not had a cycle in the franchise's history. So we've seen a guy who can do it in the minor leagues, and it's just the latest offensive highlight from the 23-year-old Johnston so far this year. Throughout 
throughout the season, he, over 42 games, 24 at Class A Jupiter and 18 with Beloit. He's hitting 342, 7 home runs, 12 doubles, a staggering 40 RBI, and 28 runs scored. He's been a revelation. Obviously, we need to see how this continues to develop, especially when he ends up making the jump to the higher levels of the minor leagues. But this is a very solid start for Johnston in his first full minor league season. He was drafted in 2019, played in short season Batavia in 2019. So got a little bit of the taste in 19. Obviously wasn't part of 2020 because there was no minor league season. But he's having a really strong start to 2021. And he's a guy to watch as things continue on. And a couple other quick hits. Uh, infielder Bryson Brigman is a name worth watching. He's up in AAA Jacksonville right now. He's hitting 320 with an 870 OPS. And he has hits in 18 of his last 22 games. And that includes three games where he has at least three hits. And it's I believe it's two four-hit games in that span as well. And then just to give the running stats on the Marlins pitchers taken in the 2020 draft. Max Meyer, eight starts, 1-4-2 ERA. 39 Ks against 20 walks over 38 innings. Uh, Jake Eater, 1.08 ERA. He leads the AA South with 62 strikeouts and has only walked 17 over 41 and two-thirds innings. Uh, Zach McCambly in, in Class A Beloit, 307 ERA. 58 strikeouts against just four walks. Again, that's almost a 15 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio over 44 innings throughout eight starts. And Kyle Nicholas, also in Beloit, 5-1-3 ERA. It's gotten bumped up there a little bit in the last couple starts. 47 strikeouts against 17 walks over 33 in the third innings. And Dax Fulton down in Class A Jupiter has a 5-6-3 ERA with 28 strikeouts against 13 walks over 24 innings. So... The group, you're seeing some highs and lows there. And again, it's just a matter of the development. The ERA numbers are going to fluctuate a bit, but watching the progression, watching how many pitches they're able to throw, how deep they're able to get in the games, and just where their stuff is looking is the key to watch, especially in the first year of Pro Bowl. And with that, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Fish Bites. I'm Jordan McPherson. Thanks so much for joining and thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again next week.